Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Judges is one of the most violent and bloody books in the Bible. It is not a moral manual or a story about role models, but rather a tragic narrative about Israel's moral corruption and God's continued commitment to saving his people. The tragedy here lies in the overwhelming corruption and depravity of our human condition. Despite being loved and sought after by the king of all kings, Israel's cycle of rebellion remains unbroken. Israel rebels, God allows them to be conquered and oppressed. Israel cries out and repents, God sends a judge to deliver them. There would be an era of peace, but eventually Israel would sin and the cycle would start over. This is the rhythm of judges. God has called his people to be a holy people. And instead of remaining faithful to the law and showing all the other nations who God is and what he is like, they become no different from those who dishonor God. They did what was right in their own eyes. As time goes on, these judges, or rulers of the people, become more and more corrupt. When we define what is good, we hit rock bottom. The book ends with a phrase that is repeated four times. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They have no king, nobody to unite them and bring them out of their cycle of corruption. They need to be rescued. They need a king who can rescue them from themselves. The book of Judges not only points to King David, but points to our ultimate king, the one who can rescue us fully, Jesus. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. I wanna just recap. It was a little bit difficult for me to hear what Jess was saying in the video and maybe for some of you guys as well. So I wanna just recap quickly what's taking place with the move. We wanted to let our church family know this first and then we're gonna let the DAC know, but we felt like uh, in, in, in a way of operating that, that our church family has the right to know about what we're doing first and then we're gonna let uh, the business world know. And so Grateful for the DAC, for the place that they provided, but we want to let you guys know first. August 29th is, will be our first uh, um, date at the new location. Again, the reason for this is, is a few reasons. And as she said, one, we're going to be saving $1,000 a month. That's a good chunk of money. Yeah, woohoo. And the, the other big thing is the kids area. So it has a much larger kids area um, that's, uh, um, that gives us the opportunity, as she said, to build out. It's, it's, it's more accessible. Um, for Sundays. And so one of the questions she was answering is why another move? Uh, we've, I think this will be our fifth move as a church. And, and so we understand, A, the church is not a location or a building. It is actually the body and the body of Christ. Uh, but, but, but part of it is that we want a permanent home and we would love to have a permanent home, a place that we call our home, but it's just not there for us now. And so one thing we can do is, is keep praying for that and keep praying God would open up the doors there and provide the finances and that's something that would uh, uh, come to pass. But for right now, this provides um, just a better option for us in the season of life that our church is in. So for kids, um, 
even just the meeting space, it's a little bit easier to find for parking and whatnot. And so that's why we're gonna make this move. And so pray for us in the move and in the transition, contact Wally if you have questions. Jason Patterson, Director of Family Ministries will be the coordinator over the move. So with that, we're gonna, we're gonna jump right in to our series in, in Judges titled, Trust Me, I Know I'm Right. Okay, and we know that it is spelt right. Uh, we know that it is spelt wrong if you look at um, how we've spelt the the series title. But we purposely spelt it wrong on purpose because the people of God were, in a sense, saying, "Trust me, I know what's right." When in all reality, they didn't know what was right, and they decided to go rogue and go their own way. And we've seen over and over and over again what happens when people decide to do that—the moral corruption that follows and whatnot. And so, what what we are arguing for is that God's law is good, though law, God's law cannot save us. It is insufficient in its means to be able to save us, but it is good. However, God provides a law fulfiller named Christ who comes to fulfill the law of God and then empowers us to live out the law of God. But it's never the Christian's job to look at the law of God that was provided that was good and say, no, thanks, I'm going to do things my own way. But that's what Israel does. And they do that time and time and time again. So that's where we're at. We're in this series. We've looked at a few judges. Judges aren't actually arbitrators um, like we see today in like a civil court case where they're uh, on just uh, dealing with and navigating um, lawsuits and cases like that. Judges actually in the book of Judges are leaders. They're military rulers, they're redeemers, they're rescuers of God's people. So we need to understand first what exactly a judge is. With that, turn with me because we're going to continue to look at Gideon today to Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8. We've looked at a few different judges, and now we've been looking at Gideon for the past two weeks. We're going to continue looking at Gideon today. I'll give you guys just a second to turn there. Judges chapter 8. Just a recap. Judges is the story of God's people coming into the promised land. They're, they're, they're in the land of Canaan, the promised land. They were led there by Joshua. Joshua dies, and now these judges are appointed. We've seen a few of them. Now we have Gideon. What do we know from Gideon's story? You don't have to turn there with me. I'm just going to go back and explain to you that, that when we're introduced to Gideon, you can go back and listen to that sermon from Ronnie two weeks ago, that he was actually in the wine press. And he was in the wine press because he was a chicken. He was a coward. He was hiding. And, and, he, and he was uh, afraid of the Midianites. Okay? So, so that's how we're first introduced to him. We see him as a Gideon, or as, as a coward. And then God says, you're a mighty warrior. That, that's the title we looked at last week. God gives him this title by grace. He doesn't show that he's a mighty warrior. He doesn't move into being a mighty warrior through mighty acts. Instead, God says, this is who, you're, who you are and who I'm going to mold and shape you into. And so what, what we actually see in uh, chapter 6, verse 34, you don't have to turn there, but it says this, but the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, okay? Again, Gideon didn't earn the clothing of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord came along by grace and said, I'm going to clothe you. Clothing is a theme we see throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end. In fact, the very first clothes that man tried to provide for themselves were fig leaves. The very first sacrifice of blood we see in the Bible is God shedding the blood of an animal to provide clothing for Adam and Eve, okay? And, and then throughout, we see this theme of clothing. Even in the end of our Bible, in Revelation, we see that all the saints are going to share the same clothing together. 
So we see this man, Gideon, he was a coward. God says, courageous warrior, he's going to mold him into that. He gives him clothes, not, not clothes that he has earned, but, but, but a clothing of grace. And then at the end of last week, what we looked at is Gideon goes to war. And he goes to war on behalf of the nation of Israel. And God weeds his army down from 32,000 men down to 300. And they are victorious. How? They show up blowing trumpets and with candles. And all they do is run after this army. This army starts killing one another. God brings the victory as he told Gideon that he would do. So we end off last week with them killing two princes. And, and, and not Gideon and his 300 men, but this country called Ephraim. And, and, and the tribe of Ephraim, they kill these two princes. Where are they at at the end of chapter 7? Look there with me. It'll help us as we pick up today. Look at the end of chapter 7, verse 25. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. So what's the author doing? Taking us back to a winepress, taking us back to a rock where we were first introduced to Gideon. Why? Because at first he was at a wine press as a coward. Now he's at a wine press again, victorious with the victory that God had provided. And then we pick up today in chapter 8. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at this today. And this is going to be our main point. The attire, in a sense, the clothing that we acquire. The attire that we acquire. That's what I want you guys to remember. The attire that we acquire. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at, uh, at, at, at verse 1. Verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see that this attire that we acquire actually frees us from seeking accolades. And then verses 4, for you guys that are note takers, verses 4 through 9, we're going to see what happens when we forget how we acquired our attire. And then 10 through 21, we are going to see when our attire isn't enough. When our attire, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I got you guys mixed up. Verses 22 through 28, we're going to see when our attire isn't enough, okay? And I'll go through this. It's a massive chunk. We're not going to be able to um, read it up front and then read it again. So I'm going to work us uh, through it today. But the attire that we acquire, and, and here's, here's what I want to do. I want us to start us with an equal starting place today, okay? So here's, here's what I have. $1,000 bill, okay? $1,000 bill, fresh. I will give it, I will give it to the person today. If you come forward, there's just one cat. You have to claim that you are absolutely perfect, okay? So you've never missed the mark. You've never failed at anything. You've lived up to God's perfect standard. It's right here for you. It's $1,000. Will, will someone come and get it? Okay, point, point proven. It was going to be awkward if someone did. <laughs> I just, I thought about that. I was like, I'm going to have to walk them through this carefully, okay? First, you're a liar, okay? Second, you're self-righteous and you're prideful. Uh, but if we can all admit that we've started at the same place, that we have all, listen, there, there's not a Christian with an A, B, C, or D as, a, as, as, as this place that like born into the world, there's, there's people. Some are A's, they're really awesome people like the person down the road. Some have a B, some have a C. All Christians have a starting place born into the world because of sin. We all have F's, which stands for fallen short or fail, uh, failure to live up to God's standard. Now, 
We like to think, you know, I'm kind of like a B or I'm kind of like a C. I might not be an A, but what we do is we compare ourselves to the people that do live next to us that live down the road. But according to God's standard, all of us are born and live with an F where we have failed or fallen short from his perfect standard. If we can admit that, we all start with the same starting point whenever we're born coming into this world. I don't like when people are like, man, I wish so-and-so would become a Christian because they're so awesome. It's like the, 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 the community of God would be blessed just to have them in. The reality is, is all of us have asked. We've all fallen short, all failures, okay? Here's the other side of this. This, this last year, I, I was given this coat. I'm about to pull out, okay? I was given this coat as a gift. It was given to me. It is not in my pastoral budget, okay? I do not have the money to buy this coat. It is a tremendous gift that was given to me. It is a, I was going to pull it out, but I kind of don't want to mess it up. It is a Burberry cashmere jacket, okay? So, it's worth a lot of money. If you guys want to Google it and look it up, they're really, really expensive. The person that gave it to me was like, do you know how to take care of cashmere? I'm like, I grew up in Roseburg, okay? I know how to take care of Carhartts, uh, but not a cashmere jacket. So I, I had to look that up. And so this was given to me as a gift. <clears throat> Could not afford it. It's a lavish gift. I want to, uh, to, to explain this. It, 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 it's an attire, a piece of clothing that was given to me by grace. I didn't earn this. Uh, and I can't pay for it back. Like I can't give the person what it's worth who gifted it to me. It is a gift of grace. That's what grace is. It, it is a lavish gift that we are given that we can't lay any claim to. I can't go, here's this one little piece of thing that I did to attribute to this gift completely free. We've also explained it here is that God's grace is like a one-way love. It's not reciprocated for, for, for our love back at God. God's love moves at us one way, always, constantly. It's, it's his grace. He initiates it. He moves it forward at all time. It's not something we deserve, okay? So the attire that we acquire, let's pray. <clears throat> God, thank you for your word. We pray that through your spirit, you would humble us, correct us, teach us, that we would listen to what you have for us this morning. God, thank you for our vets as, as, as we come together this Memorial Day. I thank you for the sacrifice uh, the sacrifices that have been made for our country. God, I thank you for the freedom that we have that ult ultimately points to the greater freedom that we have in Christ and the sacrifice that you've made, Lord. We're praying this morning that you would teach us. We're praying, God, that you would meet with us. You would humble us. You would encourage us. You would heal us. Remind us of the gospel and of the good news. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Judges chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, okay? Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Aviazar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subdued, uh, um, subsided when he said this. Okay. The attire that we've acquired, grace-given clothing from God that he's covered us in, frees us from seeking accolades and praise and the approval of man, okay? So what happens here is Gideon gets this, in a sense, victory over this whole, whole massive army of Midian. And what's happening is that as the Midian army runs away, he calls to his fellow Israelite brothers in Ephraim, and he's like, hey, cut them off and stop them at this point. And so they do, and they cut off their heads. 
But when the, uh, Gideon approaches them, they're, they're, they're angry and they start accusing him fiercely. And what they're saying is this, how in the world and why in the world did you go to war without us first? Why did you go and, and, and seek battle against this country without letting us know? And the reason why they're mad is because they actually want the praise of victory themselves, but now they can't lay claim to all of it. So Gideon gives this very winsome and diplomatic response. What he is essentially saying is, what is the grapes from where I come from? It's like grape juice in, in comparison to the country that you come from. And what he's saying too is, what victory have I have in this battle in comparison to what you have now? You have the princes of, or you have the heads of princes. What do I have? And so they're like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we are pretty awesome. And so they calm down. But that's what their anger is about. They're, they are hungry for the praise and the victory. Did not God say this when we were introduced to Gideon? God said, hey, I'm going to bring the victory because ultimately what will happen is Israel will boast against me. God had already told them this was going to happen, so this is what's happening here. They're just mad because they're not going to get all the praise and they're not going to get all the glory. And we might think that, that, that Gideon's just this really diplomatic guy and he's very gracious, but we'll see later in this chapter. That's not the case at all. He was just likely afraid because Ephraim, like they were known as the prima donnas, they were larger in number, so he was probably just scared of them. So this is how he responds. The attire that we acquire, the, 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 this grace-given clothing from God, frees us from seeking accolades. You know what they should have done and what Gideon should have done? He, he should have said, aren't we all God's chosen people? Like, aren't, isn't the nation of Israel God's chosen people by grace? Like, that in itself is good enough. Like, isn't that good enough for us that God chose us to be his people? And, and, and then they should say, hey, look at where we're all at. We're in the land of Canaan. God gave us this land. It was actually grown off the backs of the Canaanites. But God brought us into this land. He gave us the land. He gave us the victory of this land. Like, shouldn't we just be happy? Uh-uh. They're mad. They're angry. Why? It reminds me, as much as I don't want to admit this, of this song in the 80s by Eric Carmen called Hungry Eyes. So I'm dating myself here, but it's from the movie Dirty Dancing, okay? It's not a proud moment from the pulpit. But the lyrics of the song are all about this guy who has these hungry eyes and he's lusting after this woman. The same lust is any time that we want praise and glory that deserves only to go to God alone is lust. When we want something that doesn't belong to us, when a man lusts after another woman who is not his bride, that's lust. He's wanting something that doesn't belong to him. The nation of Israel wants praise and glory and accolades that only God deserves. They're lusting for it. Oftentimes we do this too. We lust for things that we don't have. And in the song, he's talking about hungry eyes. You have to pay attention to hungry eyes because hungry eyes of wanting more are linked to a hungry heart and soul that is not content and can't get enough in life. And so we lust after things. Social media leads us to do this, constantly lusting after things people have. And this is what Ephraim is doing is they want praise, they want accolades. But when you understand if we all have the same starting place, broken, fallen short failures, and we all have the same clothing, then what it starts to do is kill this thing of wanting accolades. Do we get mad with, with, with our relationships and our spouses when we don't hear thank you, when they don't seem grateful? Because the more you understand that you have a piece of attire that you haven't acquired, then you don't get to go around saying, well, I, sh I deserve to be thanked. I deserve gratefulness. I deserve all these things. Because in, in reality, you have the greatest gift that you don't deserve. This is where problems come from. Verse 4. 
what we're going to look at here is this, is when we forget how we acquired our tire. And I would call it grace-nesia, gospel-nesia, whatever you want to call it. When we forget grace and we forget the gospel and we forget how we acquired what we're tired with. Verse 4, and Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, again, fellow Israelites, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zumana already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmana into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there, he went up to Peniel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Peniel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Here's a prime example of what happens when you forget how you acquired the attire that you've been given. When you forget grace, when you forget the gospel, because Gideon should be the most humble man ever. Gideon's story, if you walk back through it, is about this coward and this chicken and God's grace and mercy, compassion, and patience with him along the way. Through and through, Gideon's asking for tests. We have the fleece. He's like, hey, I'd like it to be wet. The next day, I'd like it to be dry. And God, God is meeting him in the midst of his weakness over and over again. When he's faced with the army, God brings him down to the army. He's like, let me hear. Uh, I want to allow you to hear what I'm doing behind the scenes. Gideon should have been a man that offered so much mercy and so much grace to people because he's experienced so much of it himself from God. But instead, as soon as he sees other people that are fearful, because that's what's happening. The the men of Succoth, it's kind of wise. They're like, wait a minute, you have the heads of the kings? And he's like, no. And he's like, okay, well, we got bread for you and you got their heads. Because from their perspective, they're like, if they whoop your butt, they're going to come back here and whoop ours. And so he's like, we're not going to give you food and bread until you have their heads on a platter. And Gideon's like, I don't have any tolerance for this sissiness. He's like, I'm going to go get them, and I'm going to come back here, and I'm going to whoop all you guys. I'm going to beat you with thorns. I'm going to beat you with briars. And then after that, I'm going to break down your tower, and I'm going to kill some of the other men here as well. That's his response. How do we have a response like this that lacks such grace and lacks such compassion and lacks such mercy? It's because when we forget grace and we forget how we've acquired the attire that God has given us, it's easy to pick up stones and throw them at other people. It really is. The other thing that we see here is that, the, is that his fellow brothers in Christ loved their comfort and loved their security. And they weren't willing to give that up. So that is definitely wrong, as our country loves comfort. There's a reason why the U.S. consumes 80 to 85% of the world's opium, because we love comfort. We don't like pain. We don't like to be uncomfortable. We like security. And here we see this. Um, This doesn't seem like a very secure decision. This is going to put my life at risk, so I'm going to say no thanks. That's what they're saying. And Gideon's response is anything, anything but gracious. So we have to ask ourselves this. What happens when our grace tank and our patience for others becomes low? What happens when we start to notice that we don't have patience for people that think differently than us? What happens when we don't have patience for people that have a different opinion on masks than us? What happens when people have different opinions on theology than us? 
What happens when we don't have grace and patience for people that at one point, people walked with us through painful seasons of life, difficult seasons, and as soon as someone else is in one, we're like, why are you doing this? I have seen this. I've seen people who have graciously walked through people that were engaged in premarital sex, whatever it is, you name it. And we should speak grace and truth, but as soon as, 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 soon as someone patiently walks with them, it's, it, it's amazing how quick we can grab stones and throw them. It's amazing how people walk through our marriages that we can become unpatient with people. It is amazing that any theological knowledge that we have gained, including the gospel, how easy it is for us to become so arrogant and prideful and lack grace and compassion with dealing with others because, here's why, something other than grace is captivating your heart, period. You, 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 have, you, you have remembered the gospel at one point, but like, like John says to the church in Ephesus, you have forgotten the love in which you once had, the love for grace and the love for the gospel. It's easy. You know the Bible is just soaked with, with, with what it looks like to be gracious and gentle. I'm going to read some of these because I have a ton of them. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, listen to this, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. Colossians 3, this is one of my favorite, 12-15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Over and over and over again, we, we can see the scriptures talking about gentleness and patience. And it's really difficult for us to have this when we forget how much grace that we actually need and how much grace that God has actually given us. So much so that the song Amazing Grace actually becomes something like this. God, I thank you for average grace that saved a pretty darn good person like me. It's true. We've changed the song because that's what our culture feeds us when it's actually thank you for amazing grace that has saved a wretch like a wicked person like me. That's when grace stays amazing, when we understand how much God has given us, that we have this attire that we have not paid for, purchased, or acquired but was given to us. Gideon forgot that. And he was slow to give grace to his fellow brothers. You know what he's demanding? He's demanding respect. You guys should recognize who I am. I'm God's chosen one. You guys should give me respect. You know, Jesus went to the cross and was crushed so we wouldn't have to be crushed by constantly trying to live and obtain respect from other people. He was disrespected so that we too can be disrespected, but know that ultimately we have God's acceptance and approval. Gideon had what I call grace-nesia or gospel-nesia. It's that you, you, you grasp the gospel for a moment, and then you leave here on Sunday, and on Monday you forget the grace that has saved you, and you become impatient and anything but gentle with other people. It is, 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 is the relational wakes in your life, and is it because maybe you have forgotten grace, that you're responding to others in the same way that Gideon is with a lack of patience. What this also is and what it's driven from, comparison. Comparison. <clears throat> when, when we live constantly comparing, as Gideon could, well, look what I've done. I deserve to have this. I went to war for this country. I'm trying to bring us safety. What have you guys done? You're just sitting over here doing nothing. At least give us some food. What squashes comparison in our relationships? The cross. 
graced us to understand the attire that, we, uh, that, that we've acquired that we haven't earned squashes comparison. My wife and I don't do well whenever we are in the infancy stage, okay, of, of children. We are past that. We, we are evil people in the middle of the night, okay? Evil people. The stuff that we say to, be, to each other is awful. It's a comparison match, okay? I, and, 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 and we do that in the middle of the night. Well, I've done this, you doing this, right? I also have in my pocket a flosser. I don't know if you guys know what those are. My wife's gonna cringe. So it's like a little toothpick flosser thing, right? Okay, here's a comparison match. I also have keys, okay? Just letting you guys into the fact that our household isn't perfect, okay? I leave these around the house all the time, okay? All the time. My wife hates it. I mean, loathes it, okay? And there's a spot where the keys go, where I think the keys should go every time you walk in the house, right? Where are the keys normally at? Not in that place, okay? These are the stupid things we fight about when we forget grace. Which way the toilet paper should go on? It should go, obviously, from the bottom, because scientifically, gravity comes down, okay? So, but you argue about these stupid things. Why do you argue about these things? You argue about stupid things in your relationships when you forget the fact that ultimately you have the greatest gift of this attire that you've not acquired by God. It was given to us. We start to compare. We start to do this. We start to tear one another down. It's, well, I've done this and you haven't done this. I've done this and you haven't done this. Our culture feeds this, guys. Our culture feeds this. It's not from the Bible, it's from the culture. So much stuff in our culture is you deserve this, you deserve this, you deserve this. And so when we arrive with that, preach to us for so long, then we actually start to believe, I deserve this, you should do this. And we get to grace and go, man, I'm given what I don't deserve. Let's keep cruising here. Verse 10. We're going to read through 21. Now Zeba and Zomana were in Karka with their army of about 15,000, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went out by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbaha and attacked the army for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zomana fled and pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zomana. And he threw all the army into a panic. So he did exactly what he said he was going to do. He went and got these guys. And now he's going to do exactly what he told them he was going to do. Verse 13. Then Gideon, look what it says, the son of Joash. Why is the author to say that? Because he's trying to take you back to his roots, his origin. He's beginning. Remember this coward who's now so self-righteous? Look, the, the, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent Peris. And he captured a young man of, of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of uh, uh, Zeba and Zalmana already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Peniel, and he killed the men. He killed the men of the city, his fellow brothers. 18. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmana, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. And as the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said... To Jethro is firstborn, rise and kill them. And he does this because it would bring much shame on people to be killed by a young boy. 
But the young man did not draw a sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then, then Ziba and Zalmanah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmanah, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the camels. We, we start to see something here. Starting in verse 22, we're going to see this. When the attire that God gives isn't enough. When the attire that God gives us isn't enough, because we start to see he was actually driven by vengeance. And we see in verse uh, 21 here at the end that he took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks of their camels. Gideon started to believe something, that the attire, the clothing back from chapter six that God gave him wasn't enough. And God hadn't properly furnished him with all that Gideon deserved to be uh, furnished with. So now he's taken ornaments and stuff off of other kings. And we're going to see what he does here as well. This is what happens when we look at God's gift of grace and say, it's just not enough. 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also. For you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make just a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garnets worn by the king of Midian and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod out of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years. So what's happening at the end of Gideon's life here? He had forgotten the grace that was extended to him and said that the attire, this clothing of being clothed by the Lord is not enough. The victory you've given me is not enough. Everything you've provided for me is not enough. And so they say, Gideon, we want you to be king. That's the language. We want you to be king over us. And Gideon says this. He says, I will not be king over you. I will not rule over you, right? But he says that with his mouth, but his heart says everything else. How do we know that? If you read on into his death, you will see that he had like 70 wives and he had a concubine. And he actually names his concubine son Abimelech, which actually means son of the king, Okay, so he said one thing with his mouth, but something else was believed in his heart. This is the same thing for people that, that, that spout off all the big, right theological words and vocabulary, but their hearts haven't actually grasped what the gospel or what grace is. Those people scare me, honestly. The people in the church that have all the right language can say all the right things, but their hearts are not actually grasping the grace of God and the gospel. I would say that was, in a lot of ways, me. I set out on the acquisition of knowledge early on to, to, to so much so that uh, my wife and I get an allowance every month. I spent all of my allowance the day that I got it on books and theological books instantly. Like it was, she was like, that's how you're going to spend all your money. That's how I'm spending it. My heart grew, I think, further and further away from understanding what grace and the gospel was. And I dealt with a lot of my doubts, fears, insecurities and stuff by dealing with stuff with the head knowledge, just another way to mask or un, uh, just leave behind what was going on in my heart. Because it's easy to throw out stuff and spout it with your mouth. It's a different thing when grace comes into your life and grabs hold of it. 
and the gospel grabs hold of your heart and grabs hold of your life because then all of a sudden you understand that anything that I have in life is a gift from God. None of it I deserve. If we can all admit that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, this, this you deserve it thing, I hear it on America's Got Talent. I read it on donut boxes, chalk boxes. Our culture is inundated with you deserve this. That's not from the Bible. <laughs> it's not. If you read from Genesis and the fall, what happened there is they turned selfish. They said, God, you weren't enough. And from then on, people have been saying, God, you're not enough. What you've given us is not enough. And so what actually happens when we forget grace, we become discontent. Because grace is not enough. Discontentment is driven by something. It's driven by pride that I should deserve more. But discontentment is ultimately driven by an unbelief that God is not good enough. And, and, and God, God is not good. The situation in my life, it, 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 it shouldn't have come my way. Surely God is not good. I like what one pastor says. He says this, there is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I might not understand at the moment. You see at the end of Gideon's life, we see a man who's broken, a man who says to God that what you've given me is not enough, but we also see a people of God that do the same thing. They're looking to Gideon and they're saying, we don't want God to be our king, we want you to be our king. And you actually get to see that, that, that this man is completely broken. And if you put your trust and hope and faith in me, and if we change the, the sign to make Jesus, or, or make Rick the hero, make Ronnie the hero, make Wally the hero, I can promise you, you are gonna be radically disappointed. But what they were saying is, let's make Gideon the hero. And what Gideon was saying is, yeah, bring all your gifts to me. Because the truth was, is, is that he wasn't satisfied in the attire that God had given him. There's so much that I want to say that we're out of time. But what I will say this is what we see in the Old Testament with an ephod is, is this. is Actually, it was something that, that, that the high priest wore, and it had 12 stones on it. And so it had four, row, uh, four rows of three stones and, and they sat on the chest of the priest when he went into the most holy place and there he would take the judgment for himself and for God's people, okay? What we ultimately know is this, is that there was a greater Gideon that came thousands of years later who didn't come and say, I'm going to whip your guys' backs for your um, um, rebellion. But he said, instead, I'm gonna have my back whipped and torn to shreds on your behalf. He said, I'm not going to come to kill you and cast judgment on you. I'm going to come to bear the judgment on the cross that you deserve. No one gets to look at the cross to see Christ fighting for every breath, suffering, hanging on, going, I deserve more. But what Jesus did on the cross is he gave us something that we do not deserve. He took all of our unrighteous, filthy, dirty, gross rags. If we all admitted that we were imperfect, he took it upon himself and he gave us his robe, as Isaiah 61 says, his garments of pure righteousness. If you've put your trust and faith in Jesus, he has given you a gift that you cannot pay for, you cannot earn. You can't add a single thing to it. The person that gave me this jacket, if I would have flicked them this penny, it would have been offensive. Us thinking that we can give anything to God to merit the righteousness that we have from him in Christ is offensive. The best thing we can do for our pride is to look at what Jesus has done and the clothing he's given us and say, thank you. That's it. Thank you. 
if, if, if you start to think that there's something you can do to pay back God, that's a worldly view of love. It's not God's view of love or grace. We have a tire of Christ's righteousness that he has clothed and robed us. Here's the cool thing. You can't dirty it up. You can't mess it up. You can't stain it because it's a life he lived 2,000 years ago. It's yours. But it's not just about having cool attire. It's not just about having that. What was the purpose of Christ giving this? I love in John's gospel, John 13, 23. It says this, the disciple whom Jesus loved laid back against Jesus's chest. The ultimate reason why Christ clothes us with his righteousness is so he can take us back to the heart and presence of God. It's not about just having clothes. It's about being back in God's presence. The only place we will find true love and true meaning in God's infinite love for us. Christ, Christ tore the veil. He made the way for us to go into the place that he knew that was only going to satisfy us. So Christians all share this same attire that we've acquired by grace. No one has a better robe. No one has a better outfit. No one's done this work or done this work. We all have the same outfit. We're all brought in the same relationship by one way. By faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. What we do then is this. And how is going to tie this into mass? I'm going to close here. One, we don't neglect the average means of grace God has given us. When people become discontent in their life, here's what I would challenge you. Is there maybe discontentment because you're neglecting God's average means of rich grace? So average means of rich grace. In other words, the Lord's table and communion is a gift that God has given to daily or a weekly remind us of the fact that we've acquired something that we haven't paid for. The word of God is, is a rich means of grace that people neglect. Prayer is a rich means. Gathering together is a rich means. And oftentimes people don't see the great reward that comes from these gifts over a long period of time. But also, if grace stays at the center of a Christian community, which it needs to in the gospel, then none of us gets to lift our nose up at one another because we all say we're all falling short. We all have the same outfit. None of us, without anything, have Purchase that, earn that, or acquire that outside of Christ. Got that? All failures all have the same clothing, all have the same attire, and we all say, it's all given to us by grace. Which means this. If I could get people half as passionate about living on mission in the gospel than they are about masks, man, the church would be a force. It's true. To be reckoned with. About politics, you name it. Is let's not do what the enemy wants to do. His number one way to distract people is to distract people with things like masks to take us off the mission of God to go and proclaim the gospel, the good news to people. Paul says, your enemy's not against flesh and blood. It's, it's against spiritual darkness. The enemy wants to distract us with that. So with that, have grace to people who think different than you. Have, have, have grace with people that are on the different side of the fence with you. What we're doing here, moving forward, so, so you guys know, is... This is not our building. It's different. If you want to take me to lunch and hear my opinions on masks, you can treat me to lunch and I'll share that with you. This, this is not our building. It belongs to the DAC. They have members here on Sunday. That changes things. So we've communicated with them. Walking in and walking out of the DAC, we're just asking you. We're not going to enforce this. We're not law enforcers, okay? We'd ask you to wear your mask because they have members here and that's what they've asked, okay? We're not putting people at the door. We're not asking to show proof of vaccine. We're not doing that stuff. We're just asking you on the way in and out, wear your mask. It's their gym. It's their place. We're operating here with it. 
while you're in here, we're not going to enforce it. If you're comfortable, you can pull your mask down, drink your coffee, drink your water. Again, we're not going to enforce it. Have grace with one another, have grace with us. The Bible doesn't say in like third opinion somewhere, this is how you deal with this. We're trying to do our best. Use common sense. If you're sick, stay home, okay? You got a cough, don't have your mask pulled down. You're freaking me out too, okay? So have grace with one another, guys, because we've all acquired the same attire that none of us have earned. Amen?